Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. All right, hello everyone. We're here with, uh, today with our alumni, Al. And um, Al, if you would just want to give a quick intro about yourself, uh, when you graduated from Pride, how long you've been sober, uh, that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm from the I'm from the Twin Cities area. I went to Pride Institute probably in 2001. It was right before 9/11, so I was actually at Pride during 9/11. So I know it was during that time. And yeah, I've been sober for about, I just celebrated 18 years. So wow, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Do you want to give a little background about your use and kind of what led you to Pride's doors? Sure, sure. Um, I was, well, I started, um, I started out with a lot of drinking wine and beer. I ran uh, a couple wine bars in town. Lucia's Wine Bar is one of the first places, one of the first wine bars. I ran it. I designed it. I ran it for a long time, did wine tasting. So I kind of got started that way with drinking. Then it led to a lot of uh, wanting to stay up later so we could solve the world's problems. And then we found cocaine that way. And that helped us stay drink longer. And then it got to the point where it was just all about the cocaine and no wine. So it kind of led into other things as well. So then I I did the... uh, um, I started using meth pretty heavily um, every day. I, I started a catering business. I'm a chef also, so I was um, doing all kinds of special events all over the Twin Cities. Uh, and it's all about parties, so it was really convenient to use and stay up for three or four days in a row and come up with the perfect recipes and you know all that kind of stuff. So my life just completely took off in a crazy direction. I had no control over anything. And yeah, I was, I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know when to stop. I didn't know if I wanted to stop. Um, and it just led to a whole bunch of really bad consequences. A lot of poor decisions and a lot of bad consequences. I ended up in jail a few times. I ended up overdosing a few times. Um, yeah, comatose in the hospital. I think HCMC had a wing after my name because I'd been there so many times. <laughs> And I know I can laugh now, but at the time it was like every two weeks I'd be there for a week at a time, comatose for three days. Um, yeah, not knowing if I was going to survive or not, um, and really not having any kind of direction in my life. I think that's what really led me to come to Pride. I wanted to try Pride. I thought um, I thought I was very unique, <laughs> and I thought I was very complicated. And I thought that um, my life was uh, full of, I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of costumes. And so like with catering, I had a lot of theme parties, which led to me to dress up in a lot of different costumes also to go with the themes. So I did a lot of drag. And so I always like, um, was a life of the party, you know, walking in. And so I thought my life was so complicated when really all I needed to do was help, get help. (laughs) All I needed to do was get sober. And um, my life wasn't that complicated. And I think I had circumstances that were very different from other people's. But I think what led me to a place where I needed to get sober is the same as everybody else. I just got to the, I got sick and tired of living the way I was living. I got tired of the consequences and I just wanted a different way of living, but I didn't know how. So I think that's what um, finally brought me to a place. I'd done one outpatient treatment at Fairview Riverside and that didn't work at all because I used the whole time. I didn't really quite get the abstinence part 
And so I was using while I was going to treatment. And um, so then finally I, I went to Pride. I wanted to go to an LGBT treatment center because I thought that only LG, other LGBTQ clients would know me and would understand me better than anybody. And so, um, so I wanted to, I wanted to go there. So I tried it and I thought it was, it was really, um, in retrospect now, I think I wasn't quite getting the help I needed because I think the squeaky wheels were getting all the attention and, um, there was a lot of people in our residential unit. And so, um, I was pretty quiet the whole time. I didn't want to get in anyone's way or get into trouble or anything like that. So I consequently didn't get a lot of help that I needed. And so that led me to back to using again. And um, then I got, I tried it again. I got sober the second time. And then, then I did get sober and stay sober. And at that point I really had lost, I mean, I'd lost everything. I'd lost, I didn't have a place to live. I was homeless. Um, I didn't have a direction at all. So I, I just wanted to, I was sick of living and so I didn't, I wanted to die, but I didn't, I was too afraid to kill myself. I think that's the best way to describe it. I was really just not wanting to be here anymore, but I, I didn't know how to, how to, how to check out without leaving a mess. So I just, you know, and um, yeah, my parents came up and uh, saw me at the hospital. They, um, which they drove all the way from Boise. They were, they were in their eighties. And so I was really shocked to see them because in the past I'd always talked myself out of, of releasing, getting released from hospitals and detox and talked my way out of everything. And, um, and then it went back out to what I was doing before. So this time when I was at the hospital, my parents showed up at the hospital room. And then I was like, okay, <laughs> I think the jig is up. <laughs> Everyone knows. Everyone knows. Yeah. yeah so thank god they did that you know and they they got a call from a friend like a very concerned friend googled their name and and found them and told them that i was in the hospital and they didn't even know that so they they got in a, a car and they just drove up here and um yeah that really made a difference that changed that changed my whole perspective and, and everything because um, I really felt like I, I felt like I was found out now. I felt mm -hmm. like finally I couldn't hide anymore. It right. was my my mom and my dad that I talked to all the time, and I was able to to keep that facade as long as it was long distance. But when they saw me at the hospital, you know, looking in the condition that I was in, uh, yeah, that was that was it. So um, so I just completely decided to give up whatever I was doing before and just go for a new way of living and do whatever people told me to do. And I just, I didn't know what I was doing, but I just knew that the people around me in treatment and other peers that were sober kind of knew, knew something that I didn't know before. I'd run out of options, really. I, I think that was more it. Um, I was completely spiritually bankrupt. I just had no, nothing in there. It was just an empty shell. That really stuck out to me in your story because you had mentioned that you had no sense of purpose in your life and that maybe yeah. amplified your use. And I think that that's something that's super common in this community and this population of people, especially the LGBTQ community. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I think connection is a really big part of our community and having those connections with each other is, has kept the fellowship alive. And um, I, I, I craved that so much. Mm -hmm. I just craved that connection of being part of a community. And the more I used, the farther I got away from that. 
and the more isolating it got. I think at first, when I first started using it, I was. It was part of the, I was in the middle of all of it. And then slowly started, um, the more my use escalated, the more I got farther and farther away from, from the people. And so then, and then I got to the point where I was completely by myself and everybody had given up on me. I was not, I, I became a liability for everyone at that point and nobody wanted to have anything to do with me. So I just, I didn't know where to go or what to, to turn to, or I don't know. It was, it was just the most isolating feeling. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have an apartment. I didn't have a boyfriend anymore. I didn't have anybody in my life. And, um, so when my parents did show up, I was like, wow, I, they really do care. I think that's what it was. It's just like, I just didn't think that anybody cared. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw them, I really realized that they do care. And so, and they do love me. And I, it, it was such a, it was such a, a feeling that I've, unlike I've ever experienced before. And it completely changed my perspective, I think. Yeah, so you've touched a little bit on, um, you know, kind of the continuum of recovery. So you start off at a res residential facility, then, you know, an outpatient, then uh, sober housing, possibly, you know, um, and then you're attending meetings and having sponsors, living in, you know, sober housing, um, if you so choose. Um, and service work is a continuous kind of uh, game if you will in this in this field will you talk a little bit about that continuum and your experience with that it's so important to get out i thought it was so important to get out of my own way mm -hmm. more than anything is to get out of my head because i tended to intellectualize everything um even with higher power um i, I had such a hard time with higher power i was raised catholic i didn't know um i, I was raised with a God that was very judgmental and that didn't want me dead and all this kind of stuff. And so I really moved away from any kind of spiritual path. And then when I got sober, it was all about um, getting a higher power. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> I had no idea how to even, uh, I was turned off by it, but I didn't know what to do about it. I was so scared. I was so desperate to get sober that I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So my counselor at treatment actually um, he, he said, you try to define your higher power so much that you try to put your higher power in a box. And because I intellectualize everything. So I had to like make everything. It had to fit my idea <laughs> of what a higher power was. Well, you know, guess what? It's not. So when he said, um, if you can believe two things, then uh, you'll find your higher power. And I said, what are they? He goes, if you can believe that it's not you and that it's not drugs and alcohol. Um, can you believe those two things? And I said, well, yeah, of course, it's not me and it's not drugs and alcohol. Yeah, I get it. Okay, just believe those two things. Instead of trying to believe what it is, try to try to think about what it isn't mm -hmm. and go that route. And that really worked. That actually worked. I was like, okay, I can actually do this. It's not, um, it's not drugs, it's alcohol, it's not me. So, okay, and I'll just be open. And that seemed to work. And then I was able to carve out some kind of a path for my recovery and and uh, find a higher power and actually help other people and um, do service work like you're talking about. Service work is, it's pretty amazing how service work just works. I don't know what, what it is about it, but for an addict and alcoholic, it just, it's it gets me out of my head every time. No matter what it is I'm doing, no matter how small of a task I'm doing, it just, it, it's enough to get me to stop thinking about myself. And it just, enough to get me to stop thinking to start thinking about somebody else and to and to start kind of progressing and moving forward there's something pretty miraculous about about how that works and so um 
yeah, so I've been, I've been trying to do as much service work as possible, helping other people. That's been a big part of my recovery uh, from the very beginning. Everything, at first I didn't know what that was. And um, just um, um, greeting people at the door is the easiest way to get service work. Um, even if I didn't sign up ahead of time, I would still show up to the meeting, be by the door and help the greeters greet. Mm-hmm. And I always figured if I meet everybody when they come in, you know, as a as a greeter, I'll have known everybody. And I, then I walk into the meeting and I will know everybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So I, I like that. And I felt a sense of comfort uh, of being able to know people, at least know who's going to be in that meeting. So when I walk in, I kind of have that established already. And that really helped a lot. So, and that also got me out of my head for that few minutes when I was greeting people. It was an easy thing to greet. Um, it wasn't anything complicated or emotional or anything. It was just a way to meet people. And I got to meet a whole bunch of people. So that was really helpful. Reading at a reading is also really helpful. Uh, it just keeps my mind occupied with something else so that I stop thinking about other people in a negative way. So it's so easy to judge people. And I just, I try not to do that. And service work really helps me stop that, stop that train. You had mentioned your higher power, and I think that this is such a fascinating topic for the LGBTQ community, too, because there's so many people who are resistant to that for the very same reason you were, um, mm-hmm. because of that religious kind of God-like, um, I guess, experience. Totally. Um, how were you able to get over that? So I believe that Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm Christian now, and I believe that if you really are a Christian, you follow Christ, right? I mean, it's just kind of logical. You follow Christ. And what, what, who was Christ and what was he all about? Well, he was all about unconditional love. He was all about opening doors to people. He was all about helping people. He was reaching out to the poor. He was reaching out to the sick. He was reaching out to anybody who needed help. He was very humble. He, um, he just didn't have any kind of pretense of who he was. And he just... Um, had this really led this really humble life and that's if if a true christian would aspire to follow those same principles and so i i find that with the a program uh the spiritual principles of honesty faith um hope courage integrity justice uh seeking justice for your past um service work spiritual connection those are all really powerful things which is what christ did that's how he led his life so I, I feel like um, the Christ that I grew up with, thinking that that's what it was, wasn't at all the Christ that I have grown to believe now. Yeah. So, and when the Christ that I grew up with, um, yeah, there was all kinds of anecdotal things that I grew up thinking, or my sisters, or my siblings, or my parents, or my the people that were there were saying these crazy things about the church and about the. I, I don't know where it comes from, but it was not biblical. And um, but whatever, it is what it is. So now um, I really like I like the spiritual principles from the AA program, the one word spiritual principles that go alongside each of the steps, and those follow those seem to follow Christ. So I just think you know I can do that, and so um, I, I believe in all those things. I believe in honesty. I believe in hope. I believe in faith and um, living a life of courage. Um, all of that. So yeah, I could do that. I can do that for sure. That's how I've been able to make some peace out of all that. You know, so when people hear the, when I hear the stories about Christianity and how it's whatever, all the same sex stuff and all that stuff, it just, 
makes my blood boil because Christ never said anything about any of that. He never said anything about abortion. He never said anything about any of those things. It's all in the Old Testament before Christ was born. So those are all old stories from made by men uh, trying to like push people down. It has nothing to do with Christ. So I don't know. I just, there's such a disconnect between that, I find. So, and yeah, and our community has really suffered from that a lot. There's been a lot of um, really bad messaging and um, really bad messages that have carried over, trickled down to our community that have not been helpful at all. I think having a faith in something that's bigger than me is really important, what, however I define it or not define it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think it's best if I don't define it, that way I don't get in trouble because in, <laughs> the more I try to define it, the more I get all crazy about it. So. Talked a lot about your experience, um, you know, with after leaving a recovery center. Um, I'm wondering if we could backtrack a little bit and just uh, when you first got out of a residential facility, did you go into an outpatient or a sober living house? Um, what was your kind of after care? Sure. So after residential, when I when I went to the first time I went to Pride, I went to TSL. They used to, they used to call it TSL, Transitional Sober Living. And then I relapsed coming out of there. And then the second time I went to Pride, I went to Progress Valley, which was a halfway house. So I went there right after right after that and um, really, really got a lot out of that. Um, it taught me how to be responsible and accountable to myself. And it also helped me get a job, get a sober job. So I got a job at Bloomingdale's at the Mall of America. I did I worked in the kitchen area, so I did food demos and um, kind, my job was to smell the store up is what they told me. <laughs> so I got, did a lot of garlic and bread and all kinds of bacon and whatever, just to smell the whole place up. So people would be attracted to come there. And so I love that. I thought it was, I got to shop every day for fresh food and, mm-hmm. and got to create it all. So it was really a fun job. It was a great sober job. It was uh, four hours a day. So it was just right. It was during the day. So there was no... I can never work in a kitchen. I would have eaten everything. <laughs> just as a side note. I know. I'm thinking you're like the Jimmy John's when you walk into Jimmy John's and they, they have just, that, like, oh, I know. Up the door and they have you smell bread. That was literally you. I it's so true. As a server, I used to, I would purposely work at restaurants I didn't like so that I wouldn't <laughs> eat the food all day. Wow. Seriously. Wow. But, yeah. Um, no, it's, it was, it was a really fun job and I had to like, uh, any new products that we would get in the housewares area, mm-hmm. it was up to me to demo them and show people how easy it is to use them. So I'd have a recipe with it and show them how to cook it and whatever. And it was a lot of fun. Um, but I lived at the at, at the at Progress Valley while I was doing that. So it really showed. It gave me some discipline. It helped get me on track so that I was actually able to to move on with my life. At about six months, of, actually, I was there for three months. And then I found out that there was a sober house that was opening up called Slim House Sober Living in Minnesota. It was the first first sober house, really. Uh, there wasn't any sober houses at the time. So they wanted to find out if I'd be willing to live there. So I talked to them quite a while, and I ended up managing it. So they ended up making me the manager. And so my job was really to fill it and, and to um, promote it, go to meetings, talk about it come up with the rules, expectations um, that people need to, to follow to live there. So basically it was people working a strong program of recovery, you know, going to meetings, getting a sponsor, um, service work. Uh, we had a house meeting and then an area that people had to keep clean. So that gave people a sense of purpose and a sense of um, responsibility. 
And I think that living there really helped me a lot because I had to do everything I was asking everybody else to do. So I was asking everybody to get a sponsor. So I had to get a sponsor myself. I had to meet with my sponsor. I was telling them to do it. Mm -hmm. So everything I was asking them to do, I had to do myself. So it held myself accountable by doing that. And uh, oftentimes I didn't want to go to a meeting and I'd be watching Law & Order SVU or something oh. crazy. Like I still, I still watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody would say, hey, come on, let's go to a meeting. And so somebody would be going to a meeting. I'd be like, oh, sure, okay. So we'd hop along and I'll drive together. And it was really fun and it ended up being a great night. So that's the kind of nudging I think that I needed. And we all need it to be able to do that. You know, otherwise we get stuck doing the same thing that we do every night. So I think that living in a sober environment with other people who also have to go to meetings, who have to do the same thing that I was, really helped us all stay on track. And um, I I loved living there. I was there for about three years um, managing that house. So loved it. I mean, I just, I've met some incredible people. John was just here. (laughs) There were some great people. We had an A meeting there on Sunday nights and candlelight, which everybody came to. And it was just a lot of fun. It was a fun to have fellowship. We had barbecues, cookouts, things like that, just social events like that, um, especially around Pride, because Pride is such a triggering holiday for a lot of people. Yes. And so being able to have sober activities during Pride weekend was pretty um, Pride festival, not Pride treatment. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So it was really important to do that. Yeah. So I remember having uh, hosting a barbecue on, on Sunday to get people to come up with an alternative rather than going to the park. So, Well, yeah. how great to come full circle because you had mentioned previous to treatment how you felt like you had no one and then all of a sudden now you Completely. have this great sober community and these people who are lifting you up. Um, I think that's really incredible and I think that that's something that sober housing gives people in recovery the chance to do. Completely. To build community. Completely. And, and sponsoring people. Mm-hmm. I think that's been the biggest um, part of my recovery too. I've had really good sponsors, and then at about a year, I started sponsoring people, and I just I sponsored so many people. It's just been, yeah, it gives me a sense of purpose. It really does. And no matter what's going on with me, when when I meet with a sponsee, it's like I forget everything that I was going through. So it's just been it, it's like a miracle pill. Yeah. <laughs> so you had mentioned how you have this newfound community within the within the sober community through sober housing and sponsoring. Um, did that lead over into your personal life once you left sober housing? And yeah, yeah, it's funny that you say that. Um, I met my soulmate um, a long time ago when I was using for about five years. We were together for five years, um, and then James was trying to. Um, he tried an intervention on me because he thought that my life was getting out of control during my catering and all that kind of stuff. And I did not want to do that. So I chose drugs over him and he kicked me out of the house and we broke up. We broke up for five years. And during that five years is when my life completely went bonkers. And I did a whole bunch of multiple treatments, did all kinds of stuff during the five years, tried to get sober for him. That didn't work. Uh, Tried a whole bunch of things and it didn't work at all. Finally, I'd given up and surrendered and got sober for myself. And I didn't, that's when I completely surrendered and really focused on myself and what I wanted to do for my recovery. And then we got back together. Uh, We found ourselves after I'd been sober for about three years after managing the sober house that he hadn't not, he hadn't been, our paths kind of crossed again. And he hadn't really been connecting with anybody either. And I hadn't either. 
so we got back together and um, we've been it's been very slow very gradual very cautious uh, working a lot of on intimacy and um, yeah we're it's about 22 years now that we've been together again so we live together we live in st. Louis Park and yeah it's completely restored our, our relationship also but we definitely had a, a bout of a separation for sure that was needed <laughs> that's beautiful well, we're yeah. so lucky to have you um, join us here today. Thank you so much for your time. Your oh my story. gosh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. For more information about our services, please call 952-522-5683, visit pride-institute.com, or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.